You're listening to The Grid, energy conversation for the serious. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Nick Cater. Listeners of this podcast will know my frustration at the dumbing down of the energy policy debate in Australia. Energy is the beating heart of our economy. As US physicist and economist Robert Ayres described it, the energy system is a system for extracting, processing and transforming energy as resources into energy embodied in products and services. And yet we're now committed in this country to essentially a revolution in the production of energy, a revolution that's written into legislation, the cost and complexity of which I think we barely understand in a frighteningly short amount of time. So our mission on these podcasts has been to get beyond the glib motherhood statements and the political spin around this and actually get down to the hard tax about the practicalities of transforming our energy system to one with a low carbon base. I'm delighted to be joined again once again by A.D. Patterson, the former head of the Anstow Nuclear Facility at Lucas Heights in Sydney, and somebody who I go to quite often for advice on energy policy generally. A.D., welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Nick. It's good to be back. The, I'm sure we're branched across a number of areas, but the one thing I wanted to really nail down with you today is something you've been talking about for some time, and that's the issue of synchronicity in the grid. But I might just start another way and say, and ask a question, a rather cheeky one. Are we at the point or have we already reached the point of peak renewables in our energy system? I think that's a profound question. I think if we want robust electricity to serve us into the future, we are at peak renewables for the current form of the grid. And we're at risk of having too much renewables. In fact, I'm up in Queensland. I was just looking at the highest price in the last 24 hours of the order of $15,000 a kilowatt hour after the sun went down, because when the sun went down, the wind stopped blowing and the price just blew out until they could turn up the coal plants. Let's try and make the argument, or let's try and say why some people can justify the argument we need more wind, solar, batteries and hydro in the grid. According to the ABS statistics, there's been about $48 billion of investment in renewable energy and the associated transmission lines and so forth in the last five years, $48 billion. And we have actually made some progress, right? So if you look at the national electricity market, that's the grid on the east coast here in Australia, we've now gone down from something like 20 years ago, probably something like 750 to 800 grams of carbon per kilowatt hour down to 549 so we have dropped it but not that much but there is an argument that if we keep putting more renewables in the system we can bring that level of carbon intensity down why do you think that's not so i i think when you start it's relatively easy to do because you are really dealing with the peaks in the load curve And when there's a peak in the load curve, when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining, which tends to happen for big chunks of the year, during the middle of a working day and a working week, for example, you do decarbonize our very carbon intensive grid. 
However, the other part of the experiment has already been done in Australia, where they really don't have any firm resources. They've just built a gas plant at, at Olympic Dam to help firm up the, the, that corner of the grid. And you have got a lot of solar and you have got a lot of wind. And in fact, the last two weeks of May and the first two weeks of June are the worst time in the South Australian grid because it is winter and the wind drops during the end of May and the beginning of June because it's at its lowest ebbs in South Australia. And so South Australia at the moment is being backed up by a brand new shiny gas plant and imports from the rest of the country. And this is the conundrum of renewables. When they're working, they're working. But when they're not working, they're a risk and they're actually a constraint because you have to have full coverage for the full scope of the renewables because they cannot be relied upon. Yeah, I think that's right, isn't it? Thanks to technology, I can call up South Australia's grid right now and it's 67% low carbon. That's quite high. Bear in mind, I think South Australia has got the highest concentration of renewable energy of any state in the country. So they, they do okay. There's a lot of solar in there and wind right now. But as you say, there's still 26% gas. So this is all contributing to their carbon emissions of 203 grams per kilowatt hour. It's lower than the other eastern states, but it's not nothing, right? So to get yep. from, and then we're talking about, we are recording this, of course, what about three o'clock in the afternoon? So it, it, there's a bit of solar around and wind looking at the record over the last 24 hours they're going to go to a point probably about six or seven o'clock this evening where there's barely any renewables in the system so bridging that gap from where they've got to down to a low or zero essentially zero carbon system is a big job isn't it you're not going to do that just yeah. by putting more wind and solar in the system yeah and that's why we have got people who are into that renewables plus camp where people are starting to talk about battery storage now, my view, and I've got a background in batteries from my previous work that I did in South Africa when I ran an energy institute that wasn't just nuclear. In fact, it had no nuclear at all. We were doing battery technology. We were doing clean coal technology and other things. One of the challenges of the batteries is, first of all, they're not renewable at all. They are resource intensive. And secondly, they're not a primary generator. This is a mistake AEMO makes. They call batteries generators, which is really strange for a market operator not to know the difference between a bucket of electrons and a source that's, of electrons. That's a rookie error, isn't it, it seems to me. They're clearly not generating any electricity, whatever else they're doing. Yeah, I think the danger of AEMO making rookie errors is actually they're meant to be the experts in the room. <clears throat> and so it is yeah. a bit embarrassing when they call batteries a generator. But I think this is the root of the problem, is that, is that our strategic imperative seems to be renewables, not lowest carbon. Now, if we want to be in the world that we're trying to create, we have to go to a lowest carbon world. That is not the same as a maximum renewables world. And so there's strategic confusion in the fact that we're now going to build an extra grid. Now, the grid in the Australian Eastern grid is probably the most complex machine in the Southern Hemisphere already. And we are going to nearly double the size of it over the next 15 to 20 years. That'll make it doubly complex to operate, but it will only have half the energy density that the current one does. So it'll be a floppy double the size grid. And this is the problem that we're trying to convey to people is that the grid is really your lifeline. It's like your blood supply in your body. You, can't, you don't want to compromise your blood supply by saying when the sun goes down, we, half of your heart can't beat anymore. 
And by the way, if the wind's not blowing, then 80% of your heart can't work anymore. The beating heart, the electrons, people are confusing with the blood supply. And you have to have that always on 50 hertz, pumping it out, keeping us going in terms of electricity. And it's not the fact of where it comes from. It's the quality of those 50 hertz electrons, 50 times a second that we need in order to ensure the survival of basically our industry, our quality of life, our sewage system, the ability to keep the medical wards open in the middle of the night if we have a national emergency of some sort. People think of it in terms of their comfort, not the society that we have to operate for everybody. Let's go to that challenge because I've got to thank you for drawing to my attention the complexity of this engineering challenge of running a grid. So. If you think about the water supply, for instance, it's easy. If rain falls, it falls into the dam, and then when people open their taps, some of that water flows through. There's no problem. The supply, the supply, we would hope, would always exceed demand because we don't want to run out. With electricity, it's quite different, right, Eighty? So you've got, yep. you have to, at every moment of the day, exactly match the amount of electricity supplied, the amount of electricity yeah. capacity in the grid with the amount of demand. And that's very hard. In fact, you can define the post-Second World War Industrial Revolution right across the world as a 50 or 60 hertz revolution. It was the ability to electrify large parts of industry. It obviously also was to do with hydrocarbons. But in a post-hydrocarbon world with no oil and gas meant to be in the system, we've got a massive challenge ahead of us. In fact, electricity by itself is only about one third of the challenge. Taking the heat capacity from oil and gas and coal that is used to run our industries, not the electrons part, the heat part, is almost not thought about in the Australian setting. And so we are really talking about a post-industrial society which won't be able to make aluminium, for example. It will not make anything that requires a really clean 50 hertz signal coming through. Because, in fact, the 50 hertz that we think is so simple is, in fact, the pulse rate of many industrial processes that use the 50 hertz signal to do manufacturing, for example, precision injection molding uses the electricity signal as a clock to do the injection molding. So if the 50 hertz is not working or it's messy, people will not be able to do that type of manufacturing. In fact, people, I'm aware of companies that have left South Australia because the low quality of their 50 hertz now is so poor that you cannot actually get that precision that you need. You, you almost get a wave on the wave, so to speak. I don't know if you've ever paddled out to the back and you're waiting for that beautifully shaped wave to come along and you're about to take it and another little ripple gets on it, messes the whole thing up. I was gonna have the best ride of my life. It's exactly like that with electricity. If it isn't that well-shaped wave doing the work, you just cannot actually have the quality of life that you would have had if you had the proper electricity. Because this will come, this come as a shock to some people because there's no conception broadly in the community that there is good and bad or clean and dirty electricity in that sense so the and you take let's go back so you've already said about the pulsing effect so electricity pushed out on the ac system the alternating current system comes in pulses yep. 50 times a second or that or thereabouts yep. direct current 
is it's always there. So battery, yeah. maybe direct current, a wind turbine, solar panel, direct current. So at some point you've got to create turn that direct current into alternating current through an inverter. Many people will be familiar with inverters. I've got one in my car, for instance, that can turn a battery into 240 volts so I can do some modest things like yep, boil, yep. boil a small kettle. We all know about those. But you have to do it in sync, right? And that is the challenge, is it not? To yep, get yep. to make sure that the directed current is not only converted to 50 hertz, but that wave cycle is exactly in sync. How precisely does it have to be in sync? It has to be precise to thousandths of a second. So if you take a second and divide it up into a thousand pieces, you would want that sine wave to be clean in exactly the right place right across that thousandth of a second. So basically, the and this is what people, I think, really struggle to understand, the electricity system is not just a 50 hertz system. It's a clean, beautifully clean 50 hertz system because all of the current sort of coal plants and gas plants are synchronized right across the grid because the grid itself is its own fastest computer. It synchronizes itself. So all of these machines line up and all of the spinning machines spin at 1500 RPM. Now, if you divide 60 into that, you get 50 hertz, right? So it's 60 times 50, 1500. That is how we get the, the 50 hertz signal. That signal and that waveform, we use alternating current because it's very easy to move around the place. You can put it into somebody's backyard, you can put it into somebody's factory, you can put it into a motor that is out in an industrial environment. And so it's really important to recognize that 50 hertz is not just electrons, but it's the signal that keeps everything going in the 50 hertz world. Now, when we start to mess around with that and use direct current, that is that it's got a voltage, but it doesn't have any waveform on it. When you have lots and lots of little wind farms and lots of solar panels, they all have to synchronize into that grid when they arrive at the fence of the solar farm or at the fence of the wind turbine farm. They have to join in the right way. Now, you've just talked about the fact that you've got a little inverter in your car. You can have one in your house if you've got panels on your roof. That's great if you don't need a high quality of power. You can get away with it. But when you've got those scattered all over the place and you're trying to join them up and you have replaced all of those big coal plants and you've replaced all of the, uh, the gas plants and so on, and, and what you're left with is only intermittent renewables, the question then becomes, how do you form the signal from South Australia to the top of Queensland that is synchronized right across Australia to a microsecond all the time? And that problem is definitely not solved. And so there is a maximum limit to the amount of that intermittency that you can have on the grid that doesn't distort the underlying signal and compromise your ability to use the 50 hertz in your economy. And my feeling is that amount starts becoming important at about 20% renewables. We've already got more than that in South Australia. And it saturates at about 40%, which is about the maximum amount you can get out of a wind turbine in a normal day. The wind blows only about 40% of the time. And once you're above that so-called saturation point, any extra renewables just disrupt the quality of your electricity supply because they are intermittent. You can't rely on them. And certainly in the middle of the night, you can't rely on solar panels. And if the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining, and these are your two primary sources of electrons, you've got a fundamental problem. 
And the fundamental problem is you can't have a 50 hertz grid under those conditions. I want to go back on that. I think we yeah. go over that again because it's very important because this, none of this is part of the conversation, right? The conversation yeah. is renewables are cheap. Let's put lots of them in. Yeah. End of story. But these are crucial engineering challenges that can't be ignored, right? They yeah. can't be wished away. So a coal-fired generator will be revolving at 1,500 RPM and will automatically, just by its nature, be continually producing yeah. that 50 hertz cycle. Presumably a gas turbine will do the same. same Presumably a, a turbine powered by hydropower would, AD, correct exactly me if I'm wrong? Same. It's all 1,500, and mm. that's the base of the system, yeah. So if you've got a, if you've got plenty of that in the system, then the grid will set itself to 50 hertz and align. Yep. But what you're saying is the more renewables you put in, you can put a little bit in, no, no problem. Well, it's not no problem, but it's a problem that can be overcome. You can do the inverting yep. and feed it. But you will get at some point a critical point where the grid will start to run haywire because you put too much yeah. unsynchronous yeah. electricity in. There's no scientific view exactly what that is, but we think that around 20% or a little bit more may be that crucial tipping point at which you've got real problems. It starts at about 20% and it's, it's potentially catastrophic at 40 and beyond 40, all of the measures you take only increase the cost of electricity. So your lowest price point, and different engineers have got different models. One of the engineers that I work with, Dr. Robert Barr, he has done modeling that includes the weather. He's got this remarkable model that he's developed that includes the weather, particularly in New South Wales, and models all of the sources of energy coming into the grid, all of the electricity sources. And he is the owner of what I call a 25% model because he shows that the lowest cost of electricity that is reliable and sustainable and is also the lowest, lowest cost is a 25% penetration of renewables, which if you think about it is remarkably low because nobody's talking about that. We're talking about 100% renewables, okay? And really what Dr. Robert Byer is saying is it's not four times more difficult it's impossible to get to 90% renewables, which is the formal AEMO target for 2030. We are talking about groups of engineers of which I am one saying that this cannot be done. The other part of the puzzle, of course, is that you might be able to get away with a certain amount of what we call artificial inertia. So proper inertia, 50 Hertz is spinning machines. It's, re it's a mechanical machine that's giving you the 50 Hertz. If something happens, somebody switches on something that needs a lot of electricity, the grid still operates at 50 hertz, but the voltage goes down. So when you've got big loads coming onto the grid in the world that we live in already, uh, the voltage drops. You don't lose your 50 hertz. If there's some extra electricity, we push the voltage up a little bit. Energy companies do this all the time because we pay for voltage. So if they want to maximize the bills, they run the grid a little bit hot and they make more money. The whole balancing act is held together by these machines that spin at 1500 RPM. Now, artificial inertia, inertia, the inverter you have on a box on your wall, if you've got solar panels, is a silicon device. It actually uses electronics to switch, but it knows nothing about what is happening with all of those spinning machines across the grid. And this is where the problem comes in because your next door neighbor's inverter doesn't know anything about your inverter. And you add up all these inverters across the grid. So what happens is even in a, a simple domestic street in a town in Australia, 
what Simo is already doing is they're putting 300 kilogram batteries on poles at the end of people's streets to try to get the 300 kilogram battery to control the artificial inertia just in the street so that they can then take that battery signal and feed it back into the grid when there's lots of electrons coming from people's houses during the day. So you can imagine in the next 15 to 20 years, we will replace 300 kilogram batteries at the end of everybody's street at least once because batteries, these types of batteries, deep discharge batteries only last for 10 years. This Mm. is a big worry. Imagine Mm. replacing your whole fleet of batteries, buckets of electrons, every 10 years forever. You can't do better. So my worry is that we are sleepwalking, literally sleepwalking, into what I call a slow crisis. It will be as damaging as a very fast crisis, but it's, some people call it a frog in a pot, okay? As you warm the water up until it's over, you don't really notice it. You just feel you're getting a bit hotter. It is not a fast crisis. It is a slow crisis, and it's already started. Our prices Mm. are starting to go up. There are days when our grid has got way too much electricity and there are negative prices. That is a signal of heart failure. And then sometimes there's not enough. And it's like running a marathon, but at at 100 meter pace, right? You get tired really, really quickly. You can't finish the marathon. So those are the two problems we've got in the grid. And those problems are very fundamental. We've already lost some manufacturing from South Australia. We likely eventually to lose our aluminium plants in Australia. And we become literally a retail economy. We become essentially driven by low electron requirement, an economy that doesn't demand that we make anything. And at that point, you become, I think, if, if you're a of maybe by then 45 or 50 million, you're a small nation in the bottom corner of the Pacific and you can't make electrons anymore. And why should anybody pay any attention to you at all? So the long frog in a pot problem is the loss of the loss of the capacity to be taken seriously in the geopolitical setting of the Pacific and of the Asia Pacific more generally is the end game. The strategic end game is irrelevance. And and that's a worry for me. And yet the Australian energy market operator with the government's full support, is committed to this, what they call the step change approach, which which gets to the point of 100% renewables. When they push coal out of the system, which will happen yeah. on their timetable, finally the last coal-fired power station disappears in 2043, then we'll be running on 100% renewables or thereabouts with hydro. I mean, so hydro we've is got different. the hydro that we've got. Who knows what's going to happen with Snowy too? That's just pumped hydro. So that's another battery in disguise. But yeah, we've got a little bit of hydro. And the step change scenario, again, you know, the ability to think strategically is very limited in AEMO. I mean, the top layer of AEMO is basically government officials, right? So they are not thinking outside the square and thinking about the strategic architecture of the country. They're thinking about the people who are buying electrons. And so they call it the step change scenario. It depends where that step is. You know, if that is a step on the journey to a robust modern economy, you might want to take it. But if it's a step on the edge of a cliff, that's not a great step change, right? And I find it interesting that they don't call it a step up scenario because intuitively they know it's just a step. But it could be a step down. And in in my view, it is a catastrophic failure of strategic thinking 
not to do what President Obama said so wisely years ago. I happened to be in the room in Washington when he said it. As somebody, a reporter uh, asked him, you know, President, what is what should we be doing with energy? Should we be doing hydro? Should we be doing panels? Should we be doing nuclear? What should we be doing? And he said, all of the above. That was a simple political statement, but it was the most profound strategic statement on energy that you can make. Why would you exclude a lowest carbon inertial system like nuclear with your 1500 RPM system anchoring a grid that also has renewables in it, but not so much renewables that you make the price go up, but mm. enough renewables that you don't have to do the old base load plus peaking type of model. You do the more modern integrated 24 hour a day economy type of model. And that needs 24 hour a day nuclear power in the one corner. And it needs the variability and associated inherently low installation cost of the intermittent renewables. But our biggest problem is that we are diluting the energy intensity of our current grid. When we finish doubling the grid, we won't be making more electricity at the moment. We haven't even started with the rest of the energy mix that we haven't electrified yet. Mm. So, mm. so if you think about it, this grid replacement strategy is only to get to where renewables can take us with the current paradigm. But it's not an electric vehicle paradigm. It's not an electrification of a heat-based industry paradigm. And it's not, an, it, it's not a robust way to actually do anything that requires electricity as a primary low-cost input. Yeah, though, I mean, basically when you, you... I mean, there's almost all the attention in this country has been on electricity. And yep. yet, as you say, even if we got to zero carbon electricity uniformly around the country tomorrow, we would only have dealt with 33 or third of the problem, basically. We've got exactly. another two-thirds to go in agriculture, industry, construction, transport, you know, other heavy users. Yep. But let's actually focus on that one-third, which is where the government appears to be, and just see if we can deal with that one-third. Can we yep. reduce it? Can we get our electricity down to zero carbon? Yeah. But what you're saying, and actually not just you, but if you go to AEMO, the Australian Energy Market Operator's own work, they show that not only is there's a problem of variability that you have to have backup when these things aren't working, but as you say, the problem of keeping the power synchronous. And AEMO notes that NEM mainland inertia, that is to say, you know, the stability of that grid will decline significantly by about a half by 29.30 compared to 24.25, decreasing the minimum threshold of inertia. So translated, that means that security of the grid, that regular 50 hertz synchronised cycle will start to crumble, which will mean poor electricity, which will damage our computers and goodness knows what else. And that's on their figures by 29, 2030. I think on by what you were saying, we think that could happen significantly earlier if they continue to put more yep. into the grid. So they and they have no way of overcoming it. They have ideas, as you say, for that artificial inertia, these grid forming inverters. But actually, we're on a wing and a prayer, even at that point, aren't we, to get to anything close to 100% renewables. We're, we're putting our hope in technology that's far from proven and with no 
reliable cost or cost benefit analysis whatsoever. So we're committing ourselves to that right now. Is that right? Or I paint too gloomy a picture of it? Well, well, well I think you've described it really accurately, but the, it, it would be a, a less gloomy picture if we were going to be the first people in the world to try to do this and that somebody else could learn from us. The, the strategic failure here is at least two places in the world have tried this. The one is Germany. Germany actually switched off 28 nuclear power plants and went for this 100% renewables grid. Three years ago, they realized that their equivalent of CSIRO, the Fraunhofer Institute for Solar Energy, wrote a report after they'd had a bad winter in which they pointed out that their best estimates of how much solar they needed in Germany to start to stabilize the grid was out in their report, it said 50%. But what they actually meant was 100% because they had only built half of what they had said five years earlier was required to produce enough solar to be able to get through the German winter and they failed miserably. But you see, that was only a fraction of the problem because not only did they fail, but they failed to take into account the stabilizing effect of the three nuclear plants that were still operating in Germany. So they discounted those. We're going to switch those off. That, that will happen. And we'll just replace it with the solar. But when they did switch them off, the grid in Germany, which is a very complex grid, it gets electricity from all over the place. They've got things called virtual power plants, how people make money by you know borrowing electrons from other people and so on. Very complex grid. The grid became unstable when they switched those plants off. And they then had to reopen a shuttered brown coal plant and start burning brown coal. The irony was that because they, they thought they didn't have to have this brown coal plant producing electricity anymore, they had built some wind turbines on the extension of the mine. And so you saw these large machines crushing wind turbines in their urgent haste to get the brown coal out of the ground. That is the scenario we are living with. Germany has not been able to get itself off brown coal. In fact, it's the brown coal capital, just like Victoria has been in, in Australia. The other one is California. California is in many ways much more like us. It's got sources of electricity scattered around 35% of its electrons. If we think California is a bit like New South Wales, 35% of their ele electrons come from outside of the state. They built, we built some big batteries. They built an even bigger battery than we built. They've got lots of solar. They've got lots of wind. They've got a bit of gas. They had one nuclear plant left, Diablo Canyon. And they decided in a pretty much a consensus position of both sides of politics to keep Diablo Canyon open about a year ago. Now for California, which had been trying to close Diablo Canyon since 1986, for them to vote on a broad-based majority to keep Diablo Canyon open was the recognition by California that the step function introduction of batteries, solar and wind had essentially failed to achieve its goal. And they therefore needed just for 8% of its electricity to keep Diablo Canyon open. But that 8% is so valuable it brings the price back under control. It gives you that nice, robust, in their case, 60 hertz electricity. 
and it has brought the prices back down. In Finland, where they've just turned on a nuclear power plant, which was late and which was more expensive than everybody thought, the price of electrons has gone down by a factor of about two thirds. So even these so-called expensive nuclear plants anchor the grid in a way that the price of electricity in the pocket of the consumer is much, much lower. And that's what people find it difficult to understand. Is it's well, not... Let's just, yep. let's just zoom in on both Germany and Finland, because I think if you compare the two, you've got two yep. potential role models for Australia. So we could go the German route and looking at their grid right now, they've got they've got 28%, 29% of their grid is being run from wind. But bear in mind that is only about 17% of the installed capacity. They've got a lot more wind turbines than that, but most of them presumably because of the weather are not producing right now. Solo virtually zero, well, it's early it's very early in the morning or even it's dark there now so that's kind of obvious but they've got basically they have 80 gigawatts or so installed renewable and solar which if you put that in australia would be well over enough to run our grid if it was all running full bore but of course it's not so we could actually install all that extra wind and solar now and it would not solve the problem as you say they've gone back to coal about 13% at the moment with a massive carbon emissions of over 1,100 grams per, of carbon per kilowatt hour. That's a lot. That's more than the Australian coal produces by about a third, I think. Yeah. And they're running off gas. So they've not solved the problem. Basically, Germany right now, 69% low carbon electricity, 300 grams of carbon. They've done this route. They closed down, as you say, their nuclear and just concentrate on renewables, which is what the Albanese government is doing. You get you jump across the water there to Finland, and they have, to all intents, it served the problem. They're running 47 grams of carbon, 96% low-carbon electricity. To all intents and purposes, they've done it. They've done what we're trying to achieve here. But as you say, they've done it with nuclear. Now 47% of their power is coming from nuclear. And a lot of hydro. They benefit from having all that hydro to 21%. So, and then, and I did this exercise last week after you showed me this app, energy, electricitymaps.com. You can do it quite simply because you look at the map now as I'm looking at it and you can see the countries in green around the world. They're the good people. Big tip yep. to them. And in every one, you can click on every one of them and look at their energy mix. In every case, they've done it either with hydro or hydro plus nuclear. There might yep. be some nuclear alone. But there is no case around the world of anybody who's got into that wonderful utopian zone of zero carbon or near zero carbon electricity that's done it any other way, right? So it, it seems to me quite mad <laughs> it <laughs> is. Well, it, that we're it, expecting it, it, to do it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's what we used to cynically say in our engineering departments. It's a dataless model. It's a model that people have in their heads, but they're refusing to consider the data. And of course, the world has been on this journey. Many countries have been on this journey ahead of us. And so it is not a dataless model. In fact, it's a highly predictable outcome is that you can either go low carbon with a lot of hydro, Norway, Finland, others that have done this, Ontario has done nuclear and hydro. 
you've got these countries which have done this. New Zealand, hydro in the South Island, and they're going to have geothermal in the North Island. New Zealand doesn't have to have the debate about solar panels and wind turbines because they've got two primary sources that have come to them from their geography. And they're going to do it really, really well, and they're very focused on it. So, so, that, so, so a lot of the problems that we're creating for ourselves is a mindset problem. It is a deliberate decision by the political principles in AEMO and the executive AEMO and the independent, so-called independent board of AEMO to all agree with each other that this is the experiment that they want to do with the east coast of Australia. And it's a high-risk experiment because we know what the answer is. It's really not going to work. And I believe that it would be important for us to have a national discourse. In fact, it's really interesting. As an individual, a lot of pressure comes on you when you start to take on, you know, political groupthink. And people tell you, well, you know, they won't listen to you, AD, if you forthright with them. You know, you're going to have to subtly influence them to think like you do. Well, I think that the time for subtlety, if you're a frog in a pot, is over. Okay. The real question is how high is the gas turned up and when are you going to boil? And my view is that this is a slow crisis which is already happening and the irrationality of the decision makers in our environment needs to be called out quite firmly. Now, my preference is to do that in a kind of scientific engineering way, but I think, you know, the average punter should be genuinely worried. Yeah. If, if you're an economic actor and you depend on electrons, I think you should be deeply concerned. I think that a lot of us who live out in the suburbs can get away with solar panels and an inverter and it all feeds back into the grid and get some pocket money. And it seems to be, you know, just about evens out on the capital. And so we feel good about that. But what about the people who are living in high rises in the cities? What about the emerging areas of the country where you've got to supply great electrons so that they can actually have reasonable industries? And the people so, that are being kept in the dark over this, you know, excuse the pun, that they are yeah. not being told these cold, hard truths. They're being spun, you know, a lot of cotton, candy floss. Yeah. Uh, and this is coming to my next question, the thing that puzzles me, AD. I know a, a chairman of one of the largest energy companies in Australia who has installed in his home a small gas fired generator he has yep. that much confidence in the grid he's just gone to the trouble of the gas fires generator i know one of australia's leading energy economists who's installed a diesel generator on his property so people who within the system people like yourself others who are actively working for those companies if they've got half a brain they know where this is leading so why mm. don't we hear more voices like yours speaking out and saying look stop, think, maybe we've got to turn and go in a different direction? I think one of the answers that I've been trying to look for on the rational level is that the buckets of money are in Canberra, but the electricity policy is in the states and the territories. And so you've got an inherent divide. I don't know if you've ever read the contract between the Commonwealth and the states that created AEMO and agrees how they're going to run the grid. I've tried to read it three or four times. I can't get my mind around it. It's way above my pay grade. So it's not clear to me, and I don't think it's clear to anybody in that particular room, that they are accountable 
ultimately to the people of Australia, not to their political principles. In fact, the you know the Treasury Act is interesting. It, it says you know you, that that proper spending of public money should seek the least expensive outcome. Now, I've been trying to get somebody to advise me as to whether we could use the Treasury Act to say, you know, let's have a chat about this in, in, in a different room, not in the court of public opinion, but in something that looks like a courtroom, to say maybe the courts will be more rational than the politicians because we are facing, you know, an existential crisis. And it's, it used to be quite amusing a few years ago, and you could win the debate and feel that you'd had a successful afternoon. But I suspect, you know, former chief scientists who didn't want nuclear will be probably, I suspect one of them is publishing a book today to say we can do it with intermittent renewables, and that would be Alan Finkel. I think he's publishing a book about it. So he's a chief scientist making that yeah, error. And, and I remember talking to him about nuclear, and, and he said to me, hey, it's too difficult to do it in Australia. Very simple. And, and yet, if it is too difficult for a chief scientist to influence the government to make a rational decision, I think, I think it's then, you know, we have to go to another arm of government to resolve the issue because clearly the art of engineering and the art of reason has evaporated. We get this all the time, don't we? It's too difficult. It's too hard. It's too yeah. costly. Yeah. And yet, uh, how hard, difficult, costly and lengthy is the current process? So Finland, as you, you say, it took them 15 years to build that reactor. I dare say they hope to get yeah. it in a bit quicker than that. Yeah. And it was it was over budget. It was, I think, 11 billion euros from memory. Correct me yeah. if I'm wrong, which is it's about 18. Yeah. yeah. But expensive compared to what is my point? So... That's 18 yep. billion. They, they've just spent 18 billion Australian dollars or thereabout, and it took them 15 years. And they've got a, a, a very solid nuclear generator will turn out, I think, two and a half gigawatts. Am I right? So that's yep. that's more than an Australian power station running at full bore, which they never do yep. around the clock. So they've got a very useful source of energy down and, in Victoria. And, and their price mm. has dropped by two thirds when they switched it on. Right. That's the bit that everyone People confuse the cost. You know, nuclear is high capital cost, but it's lowest cost of electrons at the other end of the equation. That the price to the consumer will be much lower. And in fact, in Finland, it's gone down by two thirds as they switch that plant on. Yeah. And meanwhile, in Victoria now, they're looking to invest serious amounts of money in offshore wind. It's complex, it's expensive. Yep. It's going to take a while. So they're taught the costings I've seen, which were done for the Victorian government by a major accounting firm, put a figure of $27 billion. So already they're spending another $9 billion more on offshore wind than, Victor than the Finns did for ab about the same nameplate capacity, I believe, but in fact it's probably going to be a quarter of that because of the problems with intermittency. So they're getting a quarter the amount exactly. of energy. It's costing them $9 billion more than the Finns and they're going to have to wait at least 10 years for it. I haven't seen anybody suggesting they're going to get this in place until the 2030s, and it's tremendously complex, and it involves new transmission lines, and these things last for 15 years, I think. There's a very That's short it. lifespan. And all of the companies that have been building them in the North Sea are bankrupt, and so mm. we become the bankruptcy rescue plan for something that has failed in the European setting. 
And that's the worry for me is, you know, we, we think we're the lucky country, but actually what we're doing in this particular case is we're taking a failed experiment from the North Sea and we are replicating it. We are replicating it offshore in Victoria. And basically, if you look at it from the perspective of the environment, we know that the northern right whale, which was just coming back out of the bottom of its near extinction curve, has had two incredibly poor seasons in, in the North Atlantic. And we know from the whale count that they've lost 15% of the whales in the last two years. Because the infrasound from these turbines permeates exactly the frequency range that the southern right whales use to communicate with one another underwater. And so everybody's smiling and happy at the bankrupt company's wind turbine above the water, and the whales are disrupted and disturbed and dying below the sea line. And this is where I don't understand. Well, I do understand why, why Greta Thunberg has now said that Germany should keep its nuclear plants. You know, she's smart about energy, and she really does, I think, care about the environment. But I think what we're forgetting is that the in New South Wales now, you can get permission to build a wind turbine installation on land that you own in three months. Your environmental clearances, your certification, your ability to execute that project, you can get that in three months. And they will bring the connector all the way to your gate in a shiny new grid that you're not paying for. And you will then be paid for the electrons that come out of those wind turbines for the life of those wind turbines. But we don't know which birds are going to be. In fact, you know, we know in Tasmania they want a case for one of the migrating birds that migrates between Victoria and Tasmania, that they have to shut the wind turbines down for about three months of the year when the migration is happening. That's the one sliver of light in this madness and confusion of building wind turbines. And I just, I worry that you know, the public are kind of saying, we've been told we need this. You know, we have to take seriously these important people at AEMO who, who talk about it. But actually what we have is we have a crisis of effective communication and we have an overconfidence and we have literally a stiletto strategy. If the stiletto goes into a cushion, we are gone. If it slays the beast of, of environmental disaster, then we can live. But I'm telling you now, the stiletto strategy of the AEMO strategic leadership is going straight into a cushion called, you know, strategy of hope. And it's not yeah. going to work. Can we try at least to depoliticise this argument? Yep. So yep. it's difficult in Australia. It's become a highly political issue. It divides the two parties. Yeah. But not so in countries like Canada, the UK. Denmark, where even the sorry Finland, where even the Greens party is supporting nuclear, yeah. it's not it's a bipartisan support there, and yet here it's become partisan. But we, with all to all Labor governments, I don't want to get into the politics too much. Mm. We have a real problem here because people are making big investment decisions right now. That investment is being misdirected into what is, to my mind, and clearly as you've explained the wrong option right now, which is more renewables and batteries, and it's being prevented by law from going to where we think a sensible option might be, which is to small modular reactors. There is a real problem here, isn't there? We have to wake up to this pretty quickly in this country, make yeah. some hard decisions if necessary at the next election, and just change our policy, look for the, the plan B, which is there. It's not that we're saying 
we're not really saying abandoning zero 2050. It's a big task, as you explained. All we're saying is we think there's a way you can at least have a stab at that much more effectively and cheaply. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I'm a sort of partially unreconstructed lefty. So so I'm I'm one of those that does believe that, that there's a massive social good associated with nuclear. But we've got a, we're in a peculiar bubble here in Australia. I think that parties of the left in the United States, in places like Finland, in fact, all over the continent of Europe, have already embraced the notion of, of, of nuclear because it isn't actually a partisan political issue. It's a discussion about options. And once, no matter where you come from in the spectrum, once you decide to have a serious look at nuclear and its credentials in terms of a low carbon future, now not everybody agrees about a low carbon future, but I'm firmly wedded to that one. If we need a low carbon future, let's get the lowest cost, most sustainable low carbon future. Then it's pretty much a non-partisan debate that works. And it's pretty much what happened in California. People in fact, the person who had protested against Diablo Canyon and led the protests recently went into the control room at Diablo Canyon and shook hands with the reactor operator that day. And basically, that was a way of saying, I've changed my mind. I try to shut you down, but I've changed my mind. And I think if it's within the grasp of, of the politicians in Australia to say, let me reflect again on what we are doing. Surely these people have got some reason that they are really concerned. Surely they are not just trying to put, you know, inappropriate barriers in the way. And the strategic question to ask is not, what should I do to double down to prove that I'm right? The strategic question is always at the systemic level in major physics and engineering based systems in a society, we've decided to have nuclear submarines for our defense. Why is it then an impossible discussion if you can have nuclear submarines anchoring your long-term sovereignty? Why can't we have nuclear on the land anchoring our sustainability? Mm. And surely that is a very obvious discussion to have because of the unique properties of the nucleus of the atom that gives us this amazing power in a way that is is available 24 hours a day for very long periods of time at negligible risk and has got this massive disproportionate benefit to quality of life so to me i agree with you i think it, you know when we make it you know in a trivial way about politics we lose the opportunity of actually you know furiously agreeing with one another that the real issue is lowest carbon not most renewables because most renewables does not equal lowest carbon and then it's, it's a different, it's a different, it's a different equation. But I think part of the nexus of the problem is is the nature of our is the nature of our Commonwealth, where there is no capacity to think strategically about energy at the federal level because it's really about the dollars. And in the states and the territories, you've got a range of bans. I mean, in New South Wales, we've still got a ban on even looking for uranium. Whereas we know along the Flinders Ranges, there are beautiful, easily extractable uranium resources where you don't even have to dig a hole. You literally put a pipe with an acid or an alkali in it and you take it out the other side. And at the end, you've got two little flags sticking out of the ground. That is banned in New South Wales. And so 
our politics at the level of states and territories has to become more sophisticated and has to be about genuine options. And to me, that is getting you know, people of goodwill into rooms together and reframing this debate from being you know, an inherently political street fight to be strategic options for our best future would be a very powerful thing to do. And then it's, then it's actually about best options for everybody. And we might fight at the margins, but the one thing you can't fight against is the laws of physics. By the time we're at 40% across this grid of intermittent renewables and uh, battery storage, we will be in irretrievable trouble because it takes time to build firm resources in our grid. And so this is a slow crisis and it is intensely serious and it should therefore be taken seriously by every politician and interested party to get our heads around the fact that if we don't do something, the sooner you begin, the sooner you can finish. You know, I always laugh at the thing that says, you know, it takes too long to build nuclear. No matter when you start, it'll always take 10 years. Hmm. When I came to Australia, we were talking about building nuclear and that was more than 10 years ago. And everybody said it would take too long. The only thing that I learned from that is that they were wrong. It's if something takes 10 years, the strategic messages start soon. You can never say it takes too long because that experiment has been done in Finland and they proved that version of reality is not true. Well, well thank you, Adi. And I think the good news is that public opinion is moving on this issue as yeah. people learn more about it. There's a long way to go yet, but uh, I think if we can depoliticise the debate, and I thank you for everything you've been doing, speaking out, you're at the Senate committee the other week, to have people like yourself, apolitical people with expertise and knowledge in this field, speaking out as strongly as you've been doing, I think is going to be enormously helpful as we hopefully move towards a more sensible energy policy. But thank you for joining me, and I hope you'll come back again soon. We've got a lot more to unpack. Yeah. Well, thank you, Nick. It's been a pleasure. We are fortunate to have great supplies of coal and substantial supplies of hydroelectric power. The Snowy Scheme is now producing almost 20% of this winter's estimated maximum demand. Nobody would suppose that we could, by a mere wave of the hand, abandon all other means of producing power. It is the first full-scale nuclear power plant for generation of electricity in the United States. Mrs. Thatcher believes nuclear fuel is not only safe, but cleaner. Steam, electricity, and now nuclear power. It's a dramatic occasion. The electric way is the modern way to cook.